0: You're listening to the FYIZ podcast feed. Tonight, on an all-new episode of Playing Records with John. Are you easily bored?
1: Uh probably. <laughs> probably. Go
2: to your happy place. One, two, three, four, five. And count to five, it's pretty good.
0: Hey, all you lucky listeners out there in earbud land, and welcome to another exciting episode of Playing Records with John. I'm John, the John from the title, and my guest this time is Brian Woodbury. No, not that Brian Woodbury, the other Brian Woodbury, the one who writes. Great albums full of pop songs and and writes musicals and uh, and has done a lot of music for, for children's television and composes instrumentals for a big band jazz kind of thing, and who just released the album Rhapsody in Filigree, completing a four album cycle known as anthems and antithets, which you can find on his website at brianwoodbury.com or in digital form at brianwoodbury.bandcamp.com. That Brian Woodbury. And I know that's a lot, but I didn't even mention that he was really fun to talk to as well. Um, so here it is, my conversation with the one and only Brian Woodbury. Well, one of many Brian Woodburys, but this is the one I could get.
2: I could take you all apart, my little one, or leave you all together and-
1: I am actually originally a West Coast guy, I was born in Oakland and um, I lived in, um, I went to school in San Diego and lived in Los Angeles and sort of bopped around the uh, West Coast until um, 1986, moved to New York. So I was, um, my wife and I lived there for many years and then we moved back to LA. In 2001 so and I've been in, in here since then so yeah I'm ca- kind of bi-coastal
0: the first thing I remember seeing your name on was a compilation by Barnon uh, bar None records it was uh, called time for a change it was the song Get Wise. I think that was like 88 or 89. Oh, wow. Way back then, yeah. yeah. That was a formative time for me because that was right when I started sort of discovering music that was not handed down. Like, it wasn't my dad's record collection. It wasn't right. on the radio. It was, oh, this band's on this label and they did a thing with this person and Bar None was a
1: nexus of a lot of stuff that I liked. Yeah, that sort of came about through um, They Might Be Giants because um, I... Um my cousin was roommates with with them and my sister met them and said you have to meet my brother so, uh, so so when we moved to new york they were sort of you know sort of like hey we got to meet these guys and we got to know them my wife and i my wife elma and i she sang on one of their on one of their tunes um, fingertips yeah, she sings Please Pass the Milk, right? Yeah, she sings
0: Please Pass the Milk, please. One of the funniest <laughs> micro songs ever. Yeah, she should be proud.
1: <laughs> it's great. Please, please
3: pass the milk, please. Please pass the milk, please.
1: No, I love they might be giants. They're so good. So yeah, so we were we were buds with them and then met through them met a whole bunch of people in that bar none scene so so was that part of a larger
0: project an album or anything at that, that time? that was
1: yeah that was that was what became the popular music group the first album okay brian woodburnia's popular music group um and i think it was the, the one the version that ended up on that compilation was slightly uh, less produced it didn't have real drums on it and such. And the video where you're
0: kind of hanging, you're sort of sticking your head upside down with candles and it's very inventive. I mean, it was, you know, I, lo- I love this sort
1: of low budget version of video effects. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was very creative. My head in a fishbowl <laughs> with fish swimming out of my mouth. Um, how how yeah. disconcerting was that to have a fish in your mouth? It was, it was weird. I think it was not good for my health. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, probably not good for the fish's health either. Were you always pretty musical? Yeah, I think so. I, that was I was into it from when I was a little kid. I was not a very good musician. I'm still not a very good musician. I'm a good songwriter, but I'm not a very good musician, but I always like to write songs, yeah, and you know from very very young, so been working at it, getting better. I know how you're supposed to do it. you're supposed to shed and and you know. Do your scales and stuff, but I, I've never had the patience for that because I'm really more focused on making some nice tunes and some nice words. But you do play a lot of instruments on your record. I do, you know. I punch in a lot, you know. I I don't know how I want it to sound. I can't, a lot of times I do play stuff myself, but a lot of times I have other people play. That are better than me, and that are creative and come up with great stuff. So I work with a, a. There's a few. There's a few people that I've worked with a lot for many years. Motherfucker.
4: Motherfucker. Motherfucker. Motherfucker.
0: So let's get into the first song, chronologically, that you sent me uh, for us to talk about today. And that is uh, the
1: song Motherfucker by the group Some Philharmonic. We were all music students. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had had all met at um, uh, University of California, San Diego. And the music school there was very focused on new music, modern, classical, kind of avant-garde stuff. Mm -hmm. And... um, we were sort of uh, the uh, sort of slightly uh, misunderstood, you know, undergrads. What are they doing with this popular music? And, you know, we thought we were doing art music too. So, (laughs) Um, and we had gotten into funk, you know, like a lot of people. We had sort of um, discovered Parliament Funkadelic and it had sort of opened our world and then we then we got into Latin music and African music and sort of smushed them all together with kind of the art sort of the arty music thing that we were into I said, this
2: is my stop and you better let me off Motherfucker motherfucker.
0: I know when I started hearing the Latin and African music. I mean, I hate to say it, but to me, it came through like David Byrne and Paul Simon. I mean, you know, right. it's an embarrassing thing to say. But I mean, that you guys were doing that before that. So was it coming directly from the source? You know,
1: a, fr- a friend of mine just said you got to hear this African stuff, and gave me this, gave gave us this tape of um, this group Okrasa Sinse Kotoko. I don't even know where they were from, but it was this you know, wonderful, endless loopy groove with, um, you know, these pretty major chords, and, and I hadn't heard anything like it before. I'd heard some Egyptian pop music that my brother found in the s- late 60s that I was like, you know, I thought it was very strange, but this was so, you know, uh, groovy and, and consonant, and, and it was so flowery, and it sounded so Latin you know it sounded to me like what I thought of as Caribbean music mm-hmm. and there was this connection there and I don't really I don't really know too much about it but the, the, it was just um it, it it um it was a revelation to us
0: I hear those textures through a few of your, especially the earlier things that you were doing. Yeah. I wonder if that's something that really stuck with you, um, as a way of kind of, I don't know. It kind of adds a spice to if you're doing like post-punk rock or if you're doing stuff like that. It, it adds something to it for sure. Yeah,
1: I think it. I think it has. I think. I mean, I've certainly. There's lots of other ways of making music that doesn't have a groove and i'm much i'm much more <laughs> uh i spend a lot more time doing those but I, I for for us as young young folks that was you know also coming out of a uh the, the modern classical s- studies that we were doing it was um it was a way to sort of encompass more music mm-hmm. I don't know it was interesting that, that that sort of led to um that piece all white people look alike. The idea was to, to make it continuous. Yeah, and, and you know I thought, and I and I also like the idea. It's it's a twenty minute long song. Yes. That starts that starts at A and ends up at Z, but it with a theme of, I mean talking about race and many many other things, mm-hmm. but. Um, and there's a lot of talking in it. Uh, you know, there's a big, the, the ending section is a lot of just um, just sort of spoken over a, a groove. But musically, also, the idea um, was to make it a, a continuous thing so that it never, so it felt like it wasn't, it, It's it, there are different sections, but that nothing sort of pauses to go into the next thing. Everything kind of, kind of smudges into the next thing, sort of, or, or um, what is it? It just kind of loops right into the next thing. Relentless. <laughs> yeah, it is, re- and it's got, and the idea of it was to be sort of this relentless assault. You know, I was going to use the word assaultive, but I was like, I didn't want to say it
0: because I didn't want you to take it the wrong way, but for you to say it, now I can say, it felt by the time I was like two-thirds of the way through it, where I was like, Phew. I wasn't like looking at the runtime and counting the seconds or anything, but I was feeling like I knew this was a 20-minute song, and it keeps, it, I guess it moves at such a brisk pace that it's just even knowing it's twenty minutes, you're yeah. not really thinking about how much you can pack into twenty minutes. And then when I started going through the lyrics along with it, I was like, "Well, this is a short story. It's worth the lyrics too." You know, I don't know. <laughs> I was impressed by the by the uh, by that aspect of it. You know, I, I know that that's one thing to say. I'm going to write something that's kind of relentless, but it actually takes a, a lot of effort to charge forward and 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 differentiate the musical sections i mean there are little movements in it
1: yeah know? yeah there are yeah so it's not like it's just one thing monotonous for 20 minutes no, no I, I i hope not i mean it 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 is um i would if i were going to write something like that now i wouldn't write something quite like that <laughs> what i also liked was that you know exploring song form and trying to you know it's not i mean it's it's a song but it's it's not the, your usual song form, and and how do you how do you structure something? I mean, you know, beyond verse, chorus, verse, um, bridge, chorus, um, and so how how that kind of stuff works? I, I'm I'm really interested in how to how how do you make one thing feel like one thing when you change the structural elements and then there are sort of mini, mini s- structures within the bigger structure and it's just i just like that whole compositional thing i think that that approach is so interesting because it means you have to write so many parts
0: and you have to conceive of so much and i think i didn't hear a single song of yours that you pointed out or that i listened to that wasn't like it's like where things felt static right but there's something about music that resists i mean like zappa was the name that i was kind of Saying, I don't know what this name means to to you personally. I don't know if there's a connection between your music and his, but he had a similar sort of approach to if he had a pop idea, it was going to be cloaked in, you know, something something larger musically, or at least there was going to be a, a, some musical complexity to it that that maybe he understood and he somehow had to translate that to other musicians. Uh, Yeah. That feels like it's an additional gift or a talent or something on top of the, or challenge maybe even, on top of the challenge of just writing a song and having the idea.
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, I I think it was probably um, sometime in college that I I got the idea that I liked that kind of um, complexity, that Mm -hmm. kind of density, even in simple things. And, you know, it's a discipline to, you know, to try to not do that. Mm-hmm. You know, to try to do... And I didn't probably put on... I, I didn't give you my list of um, the more simple things that I have done. Yeah, And Zappa was, a, was a you know, a, an eye-opener, an ear-opener for me, too. All people look like white, people like, people look like white. People look like white, people look like, people look alike. I like white people, what look like, white people like. I
2: like what white people look like, like, like. White people look like white light. I like people look white like, like I like people like white light. White like white light, like, like I like people. What like white people?
1: White people like, people like I like white people all look like. This is white like white people like white. People might like white people. What might like white? My people. I got into people, Zappa and prog rock like like, 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 in the end of high school and college, mm-hmm. and and um, very much um, Van Dyke Parks was a was a. A huge influence on us, on me, and and our band back then. Um, that album that he made, Song Cycle, was just sort of right up my alley. Just in terms of that, there was a kind of uh, um, it. It it brought in like early earlier twentieth century pop writing, and it. Well, he's got a sort of a, um, this Caribbean influence. And then there's the um, just the sort of rich, uh, you know, weird without being sort of so out.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: It's dense, but it's sort of also friendly and, and beautiful at the same time. So I that's that's always a goal for me.
0: Yeah, Van Dyke Parks' music has this odd quality of being like avant-garde and and modern in some ways, but also very uh, old-timey in this really pronounced way. Right. It just takes into account like old-fashioned songwriting craft, but also takes into account. Like the truer form of Americana, like not the way we use Americana now, which is just to describe uh, folk pop with with mandolins and banjos on it, <laughs> but um, like a, a big tent idea of all the music that is like deeply connected to the 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 reality of the American experience. Yeah,
1: like nineteenth you know nineteenth century mm-hmm. stuff and and sort of the popular the you know the 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 strain of popular music that comes from you know that minstrelsy that feeds into vaudeville and broadway and 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 um operetta and that kind of thing that was sort of all that's very prominent in in van dyke's music i hear that same that same kind of
0: synthesis in in your stuff like you seem kind of omnivorous in terms of what can uh uh become an idea for you that's true I wouldn't want to accuse you of
1: being a dabbler, but uh, I'm, I'm something of a dabbler, so I really don't mean it in a bad way. I am a dabbler, and um, I'm a dilettante, but I like to um, um, thoroughly explore whatever um, whatever I'm dabbling in.
0: Can we reclaim these words? Because I feel like I have avo- <laughs> like I don't want people to call me a dabbler, but I feel like if we started calling ourselves dabblers or dilettantes, if we started wearing it proudly, because I sometimes feel that that is, you know, like a... It's like I, no one says I want to be a gadfly, you know? <laughs> but it is fun to kind of uh, hop around. And I can see how to some people it seems to make what you're doing seem like it has an emotional distance to it or something, or like you're mm-hmm. goofing on things, or, you know, yeah. the, the word pastiche. I never know if that's an yeah. ugly word to some people or not. But like, I feel like artistically, it's all about just what are the results, you know, and how does it make you feel. But there are times where I worry that even just injecting humor into music i think is something that makes people think oh you're not serious about the music that you're making rather than right. thinking like you are bringing humor in as part of the whole picture you know
1: yeah it's it's a tricky thing and i and i do get that reaction and um you know some people you know some people think that the idea of uh treating the styles or the genres as Sort of an artistic choice is a um, it, 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 it is distancing, mm-hmm. um, and so if they're distance, they're distance. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> um, I, I doesn't. F- it's not distant For me, it's no. There's no distance um, in terms of you know me feeling like you know me feeling what I'm doing. But you know, it's to, it's obviously in the eye of the in the ear of the. Perceiver.
0: I think certain kinds of music people don't mind the theatricality. Yeah. And then I think other kinds, if it's like a songwriter-based form of music, there are certain people who do, um, you know, authenticity to me is kind of an annoying concept uh, yeah. in art. Yeah. Because it can be such a pose, you know, earnestness can be such a pose.
1: It's a complete nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Girls.
0: You remember
4: that Valley Girl fad? Well, how many people remember Valley Girls from before the song came out? I'm sure you saw them, or were one. You see, they weren't started by Moon Zappa. She just picked up on them, you know, made a thing of them like yuppies. But they existed before the song. And not just in the San Fernando Valley, but in places like Kansas. It was an accent, an accent, and on purpose, springing to life from whatever their parents were or were not alike, creating themselves from what it was before. Now, how many times have you thought of something and later on someone did it on TV and you got mad because you had thought of it first? Or you got into African music and you said, hey, I better start an African music band because pretty soon everyone's going to be into African music and I could lead the bandwagon. Or, here's a personal example, there's a line from this song that's just like a line from that movie True Stories by David Byrne, but that's just how it goes. It's not a conspiracy, we don't send out spies, we synthesize, creating ourselves from what it was before. Maybe it's the times, maybe it's the playing out of vast stochastic systems of cultural change. There's probably another song that sounds just like this, we all look alike. Like yuppies, like valley girls, like the people who made up breakdancing, only now they're on TV, now they're stylized, now they're a formula, they're rock and roll. Now you can cook them and eat them and before
0: we move on from all white people look alike, I did have one thing I wanted to ask you about, which was just the, the themes of the thing uh, because on the one hand, you are engaging in a lot of one-liners and you know uh, wordplay about you know black versus white and and you know kind of white bread uh, dopey blandness right um, yeah but then on the other hand, you are getting into sort of the suggestion of, of what feels like a current conversation which, you know, we're starting to deal with whiteness as this pernicious uh, social construct. Um, How do you
1: think you did with that balancing act? I I think I may have... I don't know if I pulled my punches a little bit about it. I think I was a little vague about what I was trying to say, Mm. to be honest, Um, at the time. My lyric writing has become more specific um, over the years, and this was... um, you know it gets at some good ideas, some interesting ideas, I think, but um, it doesn't really address a lot of what a lot of race stuff that I think you know now is much more people are much more uh, clear about. If I had asked you at the time what you were writing about, what would you have said? Race consciousness among white people was sort of uh, not a a thing, and I think I wanted to point that out, right. You know, I wanted to point out um some uh, some ideas about conformity, but um I don't know if I successfully did that, to be honest, John. <laughs> you know, I have a
0: few songs that I would love to provide commentary for, if not absolutely recall, uh from listeners uh ears. So uh, I know what you mean. Oh
2: wait, people look alike. Never used to know what anybody else is like. People look white or whatever they look like. People look alike right and that's alright. People look
1: alright and I was recognize right a night. My whole adult life has been a continual uh, realization of just, you know, a, a, a gradual but um, continual, inexorable realization of just how racist the United States of America is, and how Im- embedded that those ideas are mm-hmm. that I thought, I thought, you know, when I was a kid oh, we were getting all
0: past all that. Me too. A lot of us white folks thought that in the 90s because it was part of the conversation and we had acknowledged it, that somehow racism was dealt with. Right. um, At least for people of good conscience, you know, as opposed to being this ongoing learning experience that we now realize it it is. Yeah. What was the reaction to the song like uh, when it came
1: out? It, It opened some doors for me... Um, career-wise in a weird way in that it's like the weirdest thing I ever put out but it's the thing that sort of got more notice than many other things that I've done because it's just it's sort of abnormal Mm -hmm. you know it's an unusual thing you know it's an interesting form I'd like to go back to so just that kind of long form song long yeah long extended forms
0: what do you remember about the recording of this song since I'm sure it was a pretty involved
1: process? We had to record in segments when we recorded the drums. Mm-hmm. So there's cuz um, cuz we there was no way to punch out, so mm-hmm. we cut the we cut the master tape and had had him play it was like record on an 8 track. He played the drummer played um up to a certain point, so because he couldn't play the whole twenty minutes without mistake, right? So, <laughs> That's a lot he, to ask. Yeah, he because he, he's like, David, come here and play this song for Okay, how's it go? And here, so he had cut it up. So he played, um, you know, one section, and then there was a cut, and then and then he'd have to come in at the next section. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't have like a click or a count in. So he had, so there's a number of places where he's like, you know, he just starts playing and then he hears where the groove is and he locks in. So those are sort of these fortuitous little moments of, um, you know, odd fills, yeah. we'll say. Um, so that was, it was kind of fun. And and he played incredibly minimally. So it's, it's um, you know, I think he had a hi-hat and a kick and a, Snare, something like you know, or maybe there's a cl- crash. I don't know. I think there may not have been a crash, and I think I might have added some crashes later. And it was, you know, um, first time I'd actually um, recorded on my own eight track machine. I got a uh, Tascam eight track, and so that was, um, you know, there's a lot of um, record this and see see what happens. Mm -hmm. A lot of like, just, you know, play along, play saxophone along with this and, and
0: see what you do. So, so did you, I'm, I'm reminded of these times where you hear about like someone, um, Who builds like a mystery house where they keep firing the crew and bringing in more people to come in and build a little bit more of the house. But Uh nobody knows what the whole house looks like except for the person (laughs) behind it. I mean, did you start to feel like the mad scientist who you were the only one who knew what the intention for this thing was? Yeah. And how often do you feel like that? I often, often feel that way, John. (laughs) Well, I sometimes think about that, when I've instructed my son or my wife is like, just throw the hard drives in the fire if I die, because I don't want anyone else (laughs) to have to try to make sense out of what's going on, you know? (laughs) So five years after All White People Look Alike, you put out the album... Uh, Brian Woodbury and his popular music group, and that was uh, 1992.
1: How did that project develop? When we moved to New York, I started performing uh, with just a a backing tape. And then I put this, um, I did this, I I got this commission to do a, a big band thing, kind of like a large ensemble, not a traditional jazz big band, but a large ensemble thing. At a theater in New York um, at La Mama. And um, so I wrote this big bunch of instrumental music which and put together this group called the Variety Orchestra. Mm -hmm. Doing that, I met a ton of musicians because I needed a trombone player, a trump player, a sax player, um, or several sax players, and drummers and guitar players. And so... um, when I did that show, I start, I opened it with my my songs on with, with playing to a backing tape and then the big band came out and we played and um, the guitar player from the, the from the big band Mark Muller said to me, "You know you should just do a band. why don't we just do a band doing those songs Those are great so hmm, I started a band um, doing that. Um, and that's where the, uh, that album came from. I mean,
0: I did not discern all the
1: credits. I did notice uh, Jonathan Feinberg played with you a bit on that album, did he not? Yeah, he did. He's not on every song because he sort of joined mid, mid-recording, but he's on, on a bunch of them, and he's, he's an amazing drummer. I love playing with him. He's such a great kind of natural musician. And it, you know, oh, he is. He's such a good musician. He plays everything, and yeah. he's, he just plays with such joy, too. Right. No, that's just like just makes you feel good so yeah uh, john played on a bunch of that and then um what song did i give you the song from this album is the oranges
0: uh, the oh the the oranges yeah yeah i'm assuming i was in the opposite of the blues among other things
1: my signature when i first moved to new york um everyone was wearing black you know we lived in the east village and it seemed to be like that's that's what you wear and i had always you know been very fond of the color orange and i had a bunch of i had i had several orange shirts that i had brought with me to new york and missing california just sort of felt like i needed to celebrate brightness and sunshine so um i i i went down to you know i i I scoured all the places on the lower east side and east village and i got like all these tropical you know bright orange pants orange overalls orange hats Mm -hmm. tropical clothes and just you know all these loud hawaiian shirts and aloha stuff so that uh, you know even i had on my business card that i was the originator of the color orange fad <laughs> um so like that just sort of became my signature thing um and you know just wearing really loud clothes and you know that even was... now
0: you're wearing something of an ochre hue but it's in the family yeah or... yeah yeah
1: it's a little yeah. but um <laughs> Yeah, so that was the thing and so You're in autumn. So so it was, so it, was the, it was the celebration of of that as well as not having the blues. When I was writing it, I I really, you know, I got into the what is it synesthesia? The the idea that each that keys tones have um, a color to them. So I, I I I was thinking about that a lot, and I th- really tried to put it in the in a key that I that felt orange to me. Mm-hmm. So I came, I think A flat was where I ended up. So I came across um, a live video of it, of me p- singing it live, and I noticed how kind of low in my range it was. To sort of would have actually been better to put it like an A or B flat, but you know, which nowadays I probably would have, but um, it was interesting that, that I was more concerned with the color than the, than the practicality of singing it well.
2: Sun the California Sun Born on the fourth of July and ripening the fruit of everyone then dappling the shade into the moon I fade to keep night unafraid. Uh, The next album proper that you
0: released was the album the Brian Woodbury songbook, right? Right. And that was Quite a few years later, did did the children's television work happen in the interim there? Because that came out in 2000, right?
1: Yeah, it did. It it started, I started doing uh, kids' TV stuff around in 96. Okay. So, um, and I did, and yeah, that was, meanwhile, I mean, all the while I was recording this songbook record, which was the idea was have a bunch of different people sing sing songs sing my new songs mm. i you know i just asked all the all my friends who are really good singers to sing to sing one song each so um the one i the one i put on your list is uh, a song that chris rail sang he's some he has this band called church of betty and they and they're um the, uh, he's um, he's studied and spent a lot of time in India and has incorporated a lot of Indian classical music, Indian pop music, into his music. He was big in that in that whole downtown music scene. Um, he ran and still runs a label called Fang. Mm-hmm. And he put together a lot of different people, um, including our group, um, 101 Crustaceans, uh, Orn Blowdow, um, his own band, lots of fun, interesting people. Um, uh, John Feinberg played, has played with him a lot.
0: Yeah, I'm Facebook uh, friends with Chris, and I've seen a lot of those uh, Church of Betty uh, postings, and, and yeah, yeah, it's really great music for the, for the very reasons that you mentioned um, and more. Um, what was it like collaborating with him on this song? What we,
1: what we had just done, what we had just completed um, before I made that song... Um, I had done this record with Chris Rail and John Feinberg um, of um, this woman, uh, Najma Akhtar. She's a um, British-based... of Indian descent or Pakistani descent who um, does uh, kind of, um, I guess, new age kind of world music. Mm -hmm. But she made an album with Chris Chris kind of... uh, spearheaded this, made an album of Bollywood songs. And we just sort of, I just sort of gotten into this Bollywood stuff back in the nineties and discovered all these great songs. And Chris was, you know, knew all about that. And, and Najma was into them because this is the stuff that she had grown up on, you know, listening to when she was a kid, because they're popular all over the world, of course. And, um, so we chose, um, you know whatever a dozen songs from these classic Indian film songs mm-hmm. kind of modernized and made them a little more rock bandy um uh of these of these covers of these great bollywood songs and so i was had been listening to a lot of the bollywood um and uh yeah i just i had done uh, transcriptions and orchestrations on on that album, and so i um I uh, heard um, just a lot of Bollywood, and so that was. Uh, Have you seen my serene? Was my my sort of Bollywood song? Have you seen my
2: serene? Like a boat. I- are you
0: dreaming the lyrics to this one i found it i was reading it and i i i wondered how since i mean i'm i'm so used to the unreliable narrator uh, character no, songs
1: completely reliable this one this one is is totally it's totally about myself yes <laughs> it is it's it's trying to uh Tap into uh, sort of an inner serenity, and uh, um, trying to be one with the elements, you know, because mm-hmm. it's 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 all earth, air, fire, water. Right. Take each verse is a is an element, so it's um you know it's just a sort of spiritual aspirational song.
2: I travel between continents at night. I trade winds and for
1: bills. We oh, were, Billings my wife and, and I um, took I the train from, the, after our first year in New York, we took the train across the country and back. To, to, uh, we took the train to California. And um, we, got, we got this little sleeper cabin. But um, it was, you know, kind of a tiny little room that you'd fold down the the, the bench, the, the chair, and into a bed. Mm-hmm. And um, in the trains in those days, so I don't know if they've changed since this was like in the um, 80s. The 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 trains um, were sealed off so that you didn't have any outside air. You didn't have much outside air. They just recirculated the air in the in the train mm-hmm. and um, there was this one one place where, that you could smoke in the in the you know there's like a smoking car yeah. and you know we didn't we didn't want to be there because you know we don't smoke And but there but the smell because this, the air was recirculated you would smell a little bit of tobacco smell everywhere on the train and there was no way to open your I window totally I can smell that smell that kind of like <laughs> stale <laughs> baked in v- smell yeah yeah, yeah yeah,
0: that's
2: terrible
1: I mean, it's it's kind of a you know wonderful thing to drive across the country or take a train across the country because you see this vast expanse of of you know so much there's so much openness and mm-hmm. and um, empty and it's kind of boring, but um, we sat in our cabin we had a little bit of pot with us that we managed to like. Um, make into a tea or something and so we got very very slightly high and that was the term the, the the phrase have you seen my serene just sort of popped in my head then so that's that's kind of where the but it wasn't really a feeling that I that I had on the train but um that's where the
0: title came from. I mean, and do you feel that I'm not trying to be Barbara Walters here, but is that a state you aspire to or do you feel that is your state? I mean, are you a are you a serene guy or do you feel agitated most of the time? I think
1: <laughs> I think I was more serene in those days mm-hmm. than I am now. It's hard to be harder to be serene. But um yeah it's always been aspirational I guess.
2: Swore
0: I'd never be caught in you are. for the songbook album did it affect
1: your writing process at all that you were writing for other singers I, I wrote many of them with with that concept in mind I probably wrote half of them with that with that concept in mind did that did that free you up to write things that you wouldn't sing
0: or couldn't sing or did yeah. You, okay yeah cool. absolutely
1: there's one song that I I uh, that um Jill Sobule ended up singing on. Mm-hmm. And it was it's, it's way too low in her range. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um when we came to when it came to track it, I said, "Oh, is this too low, Jill?" And she said, "No, I can do it." And she does it well. And she's like, you know, singing right down here mm-hmm. and it's and she's got a really cool voice. Yeah. So it works, but I was like I, I always kick myself. I was like, Oh man! If we had just brought that up a second or something, it would. Yeah. been It would sound so much better. But the music but, was um, already tracked, right? I mean, like you. Stopped. The music was tracked, and I probably could have read. You know, we could have just redone the bass and guitar. Oh, just to give her
0: something to sing to on the. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have heard the song, and I I do think she sounds really cool on it. So maybe it worked out for the best.
2: Taking this abuse back with us if you say' is my hand nows the news then I expect you' got another thing coming
3: and
1: another thing going. she did she did it great and it's and it's one of the ones that people hear just because I guess she's she's got you know a following and people check out what did Jill So Buell do yeah so <laughs> um yeah, no, that, that was, yeah, that was interesting. It was, um, it's a whole, there's a whole art to, to um, getting people to sing something, mm-hmm. you know, to, to coaching a vocal performance. And um, I'm still, I'm still learning how to do it well. So it takes, it takes some practice. There's some people who are really good at it.
3: Who's
2: that girl? What's her name? Is she cool? Is she lame? Oh, you're talking about what's her name? Pepper, Ann. Pepper Ann. is she lame? Is she cool? Is she breaking? Never rule. Is she anybody's fool? Pepper Rand, Pepper Rand, Pepper Rand, watching dinner over it. Pepper, Ann. Pepper, Ann. Pepper Ann. she's like one in a million.
0: Pepper, Ann. Pepper the next song you've selected, uh, sort of represents all of the songwriting you've done for for children's television but what was it about uh the theme song from pepper ann that stood out
1: well it you? was the first thing i did yeah. uh for for kids tv and i had just um picked up an issue of hollywood reporter looked at, it, that was a music music um tv music issue and i just looked up all the people that, that were interviewed there all the people in Hollywood and I sent them all my stuff and miraculously this woman from Disney wrote back said hey I liked your stuff you want to try writing a theme song and so I wrote a theme song and they and they bought it which was kind of just a weird circumstance to just I wrote two songs for that with that title and they the other one had a lot of curse words in it (laughs) (laughs) this one had a curse word in it too but they had to we had to take out we had to take out sucks (laughs) um that's funny so that was the first thing I did and um and then from then I I uh through Dave Yazbek I um met um some I met um Peter Lurie a guy I've worked with for a lot a long time and he was um the head songwriter on this show when he and they invited me on so
0: well, I know television can be a real assembly line, but it also
1: sounds really cool to be a, a paid songwriter. What were all the shows that you wrote for? Pepper Ann was just, was just the theme song. I was a, a song supervisor for um, a couple of these kids' shows, Bear in the Big Blue House and The Book of Pooh, um, for one season of one and, and for two seasons of the other. You were like, if it's got a bear involved, bring me in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um and these these were sh- shows that were um, sort of unusual in that the the producer was really into music and wanted good songs that parents could sit and listen to with their kids. So it wasn't baby baby stuff. It was you know sort of deeper stuff, and wanted the music to be good. Wanted the lyrics to be good. And then a few years later, I worked on a show called um, "It's a Big Big World," mm-hmm. which sadly. Disappeared after a couple of seasons. So, was that one you enjoyed working on? Um, I wouldn't call it enjoyed, but it was a really great show. It was, it was. You know, I was working every day of the week, and maybe take a, a few hours, few hours off on Sunday. Mm. So, it was working a lot of hours, and it was, um, it was an assembly line. But I was, you know, you get into a, a flow with it, and you're um, just. Tapping into uh, that musical, that turning on that musical spigot and just letting it go. Yeah. So that's a you know, which is always a a good place to be. And you did that for how many years? I did that for about five years, uh, on and off. I I you know I did I did some other I did I did a little bit more, a few years later, and then I tra- kept trying to do it, and the work kind of petered out. So. I started doing other things. And it's gratifying when you, know, you meet I meet young people like who are now in their 20s who listen to the, who grew up on that stuff and and um and they're like you know they love those songs yeah. and like you know our parents would write to you like oh we listened to the song Is there a particular you song know, that people seem to really have held on to from that? One very heartbreaking thing a, a parent wrote about asking me for the chords for the this closing song to play at their kid's funeral and mm. it was just like this is the Pooh song? Yeah the song is called Goodbye for Now and it's just and just heartbreaking to just think of this parent just asking about that but you know it meant something to them so it's very you know it's very moving to, to think that
3: We'll meet again
2: For for then in
0: 2004, you released uh, your next album, which was Brian Woodbury, Variety Orchestra. Uh, which is an interesting one it's a it's a mostly instrumental album kind of in the big band jazz vein although it's not exactly that but it's a large combo uh, and a, like I said mostly instrumental songs and it took a while for that one to come together it had a long gestation period right. and the song you selected from it is uh, one of the ones that's not totally instrumental it's called Threnody for Kennedy and Connelly. yeah
1: there are, there's there's one other song that has there's one other actual song and the rest are instrumentals
3: I'm <laughs> sorry.
1: This came about um, actually back in the '80s. I was commissioned to do a concert of kind of new music or new downtown music um, at uh, La Mama. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, I wrote, I put this big, this large ensemble together. I think we were 17 pieces when we performed um, live. So I wrote all this stuff for this big, this big ensemble. And um, that's where most of the music came from. Um, and it took me a long time to get around to recording it. I recorded it around 2000, 2001, and finally finished mixing in 2004. But this piece, "Trinity for Kennedy and Connolly," actually it was a piece I wrote prior to that for the um, UC San Diego uh, big band. So I, there was a big band in the jazz department and I always liked big band music and I liked you know I was interested in early jazz. so I, I wrote this piece. so it was originally performed at um, by this big band, which probably had a lot more a lot more instruments per part than what ended up on this recording. but um, I, I added some sections to it when I uh, made this album in 2004. so there's um... I interpolated a few new things into it. You know, I got into um, Fletcher Henderson and Duke Ellington a lot um, when I was when I was writing this piece, because this, this was written quite a long time ago. This was written um, written basically in 1980, long time ago. Um, yeah, so this was um, my like my last second to last year in college. Um, so I, I liked the idea I liked sort of that big band sound but I wanted to do kind of a real minimalist mm-hmm. so there's this theme that the, the main theme that comes in is um, kind of um, it's almost like it wants to go someplace else but it just keeps repeating itself it keeps the, the melodies just kind of, keeps kind of looping sort of mm-hmm. um, um, uh, sort of mindlessly, and I thought that was, that amused me.
2: parlor, they got him right on the money his head on a half dollar next to a Texan, schemer and scholar ten gallon swagger it's anyone's call as the one who took the bullet, to wear an mission, would trigger man could pull it, from any position a profile occurs
1: What interested me about Variety Orchestra, what I thought was the innovation there, was um, to put, you know, I was was into the, um, I was always into uh, like all the, all the kinds of music that have a big ensemble, all the kinds of pop music that have this big ensemble. And there's, you know, um, I'm going to have a a leaf blower. I don't know if it's going to pick up on the recording or not. So yeah, I, I was I always liked the like the Bob Wills with with the pedal steel and, mm-hmm. and 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 then the large ensemble. I was I was always charmed by that sound. And um, so anyway, the, the, what I thought was the innovation was to put the banjo, the pedal steel, the um, accordion in with the strings and horns because I thought that was an ensemble that you don't normally hear mm-hmm. you know and I and I try and then there's there's a few songs where they where those those instruments are actually featured um, and I like that I just like that sound yeah. I thought that was that was cool and that was kind of unusual so I'd like to do some more of that at some point Katie could sing and Katie
2: could run Twice as good as me, funny and smart, no stopping Katie for nothing. Just one of the crew, raising a beer, singing our favorite songs. Do
0: you sing on uh, Town & Country at all? I sing background. Okay. when I first heard Everyone Wants to Say I Do, the song that you pointed out from that album, I briefly thought, wow, uh, uh, Brian's really singing in a different register. <laughs> but it's actually a guy named Rob Shapiro.
2: Everybody wants to say I do. It's a mystery how love comes true. When the puzzle pieces fit, you get one from two. Everybody wants to say I do. Everybody wants to say I do.
0: And Town and Country, we should say, is a... Um, it's an album that it's indisputably a part of your discography, but it's not really a Brian Woodbury album. Mm-hmm. It's an, it's a self-titled album by a new entity, a new outfit right. called Town and Country. And it is sort of a concept thing of of, a, of basically just like a, a countrypolitan yeah. style, nicely produced album. Right. Where did that idea come from in terms of like the chicken or the egg? What, did you find yourself with a bunch of country songs that needed a home? Or did
1: you have the idea first of... Of you know wanting to do this kind of album, I think I wrote um, maybe a couple of tunes, and thought you know I I, I got really into pop you know modern country mm-hmm. the stuff that everyone will tell you that they hate if they unless they're really into country music, but I love uh, you know the the two thousands country in the two thousands there was a lot of great stuff and I got particularly into Brad Paisley mm-hmm. and. Um, Inspired by a lot of that stuff. And so I started writing some of those songs. And then I thought I should get like a real country singer to sing this. And then my friend Rob was into it too. He's a really good songwriter. Um, I've known him since we lived in Brooklyn, since the 90s. We met because our daughters were born about a month apart. And uh, uh, we met at the playground and we both had like a four and five month old daughters and um, we sort of bonded over that and it turned out we were musicians and his then wife had kn- knew my album All White People Look Alike and she said are you the same Brian Woodbury and so so we became we became friends and um, he's he has this band Populux that he's been doing for a number of years and he writes great sort of um, quirky I hope he doesn't hate me for saying that but you know <laughs> kind of Kind of informed by XTC and, um, uh, you know, a lot of great musicians. Anyhow, Rob has a beautiful voice. Yeah, really rich. So I asked him to sing on it. He's not a country singer any more than I am, but he dug it and he did it. So um, that's what it became. And then we wrote a couple of tunes together for it. So we this, the concept was... Um, you know, there were a few songs kicking around before the concept, and then wrote a lot of songs with the concept, mm-hmm. and then threw in some other songs that weren't anything to do with the concept just to see if they would if we could sort of, you know, uh see if we can make them work. There's some quite weird songs on there that are really not country songs. Yeah. So we called it Town and Country. Um, so that we consider those town songs and the the country songs are the country songs it rises above any kind of like
0: style parody that you might have expected it to be do you know what I mean like it's like it's not you goofing on that music at all so I'm actually very I'm not surprised at all to hear you say that there's a sincere appreciation for for pop country
2: I wants to say I do you gotta grab that bouquet if it comes to you when the stars align your brightest light shines through everything everybody say do everybody, to say I do. everybody
0: to say I do. is this a project that you would continue with like is this a band sort of that you would um town and country yeah like do, does that project feel like it has more life to you or do you think you said everything you needed to say
1: uh well it, no it did and we started we started working on some more songs But um, Rob is very busy with his his other project, uh, Populux. So it's um, it's just a question of time commitment. He's got he's also got a couple of young kids, and um, his time is limited. So um, we started. uh, There's a few songs on my latest uh, on on one of my latest albums. That started out as town and country songs that Rob and I wrote together. A couple of them ended up on this album called Balladry and Soliloquy. Mm-hmm. And then another one that was was originally a town and country song also ended up on that. So, so, And I did a couple of covers of some town and country songs on that same album too. So there's a lot of that kind of Americana stuff that... Continued, and I put it out on some other albums of my own. So the next thing that came
0: in terms of albums you were producing was the album Pay Attention in 2015. Is that right? Yeah. So this is another Brian Woodbury and his popular music group album. Did you feel, I mean, was that just a convenient name to use for this project, or did it feel like a return to that mindset or
1: that sound or that that group of players or anything? Kind of both. Kind of all three, yeah. uh, But it wasn't really a return to... I mean some of the players are the same but many of them are not mm-hmm. but, um, and there's a lot of different players on, on the album So, but it was sort of it felt like more in the same vein as the first popular music group album there's a billion songs since time began but they're gone where you can't use them all the melodies once known to men It's not like you get to choose them You sing them and then you lose them So There's the song that you selected from this
0: is The Only Song. Tell me a little bit about the, the origins of this and, and uh, the, maybe the making of it, if anything
1: stands out. The Only Song is sort of the idea of when you fall in love with a song, when yeah. you just... You, you hear, you know, you just... You have to keep listening to it over and over again. And the idea that that is sort of like falling in love with a person. And that, that at the moment that something, the, the, sort of the exclusivity of love of when you love an object or a th- a person, or, you know, or the experience of a song so that, and then it, it brings in a lot of more cosmic things about like the, you know, the origin of. Song, how does you know where does song come from? Song is really basic to us as humans, and you know, in in some way, music is. um, I read a book called "The Singing Neanderthals," about, um, you know, about that. There's there's some there's a theory that that music pre that singing predates speech, language in that yeah, and that music is it's the most manipulative it's a, a, a manipulative uh, way of um, you know because you are you're insinuating some kind of an emotional response from somebody with with singing and uh, that that um, you know you can get people to do things through song or feel things through song
2: the
0: you do sort of feel like you're hurtling through the cosmos with this idea, and it does end on this notion of you are a song in a sense of like, or at mm-hmm. least your life mm-hmm. is the song that you're singing, which I think is a notion yes. that might be familiar, you know, if but, but I, I do think it's it's a nice way to connect that idea that, and, you know, add a little bit of an undercurrent to that idea of just when a song, uh, you know, catches you like that. Yeah, yeah. Did you attempt to make this the kind of song that, that carries you away in that sense
1: like is this song you know evocative of that to you i guess i guess so i guess so i mean it you know when i was when i was coming up with the 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 music for it i wrote the music before i came up with the the title it f- had that feeling to it so kind of that's where that's where it led me so the music came before the idea Then, yeah the music for the chorus came came first i think
0: i would almost think that yeah you would have to have music that you thought was kind of pretty to write this kind (laughs) of to write this kind of song to it you know yeah (laughs) otherwise it's too intimidating to say yeah i have this idea called the only song and i'm gonna go write it (laughs) (laughs) it is already presumptuous Do you write all kinds of different ways or do you tend to do music first or you're nodding at the all kinds of different ways, I think? (laughs)
1: All kinds of different ways. Although I find that I like the music best that comes first. I mean, I like it a little bit better. I mean, the stuff that I like the most comes the music, comes music first. But I also find it the most difficult to do that way. And I prefer to do it lyrics first. Like grafting lyrics onto music
0: you're saying is difficult. Yes. It is very hard. It's harder. Well, it's either not hard at all. I mean, it either works or it's like...
1: I suppose. But I mean,
0: like because I've had it where very quickly I'm able to go, all right, I need a verse and I can do that. But the times where I've had a piece of music laying around that I've been Working with, and I'm trying to come up with my like lyrical in that can be like mm-hmm. just painful. And I'm, I, I write the worst lyrics I ever write are written like <laughs> attempting to find my way into, and I've had like different versions where I go later, like, oh boy, this. You know this early version, boy, this stinks. You know, compared yeah, to what I yeah. came up with later, the melody, everything, sometimes will just be garbage. To I mean, you know, it, in my opinion, like derivative or stale, or I'm not. I I know I wasn't feeling it. That's the worst. Is when I yeah when I play back a demo and I go, I know that when I recorded this, I knew I was just basically going blah 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 just to make <laughs> sounds. You know, like just to get an idea. But
1: but sometimes you yeah. have to just you have to do that. That's a, the only way to get into it is to get is to write something bad you yeah. know it's just the version of like let me just write something bad that'll get me started to, towards something good and on the eighth day god created progressive rock
2: and he called it rock just give me some of that old time rock with Hammond organs and Bob. I want to hear some of that old-time
0: Now, this next song is title kind of is just fun to say. Old-time Prague say featuring Johnny Unicorn. <laughs> I have to wonder if Johnny Unicorn is some kind of mythical creature that you've created. No, no, or no, if he's,
1: no, no. Oh, he's a real person? Yeah. Yeah, it's a song I wrote with my friend Johnny Unicorn.
0: I honestly thought the name Johnny Unicorn was concocted just for the Prague uh, adjacent (laughs) aspects
1: of that name. (laughs) I had now apologized to Mr. Unicorn and all the unicorns. It's it's a stage name. His name is John Adams, but there's already many John Adams. Yeah, I've heard of um, a few. (laughs) He goes by by Johnny Unicorn.
2: A prog rock show She couldn't dance to it and made us go She said don't ever play that noise again So I broke up with her there and then I read a write-up on the show we'd seen Pretentious bunks at Billboard Magazine But now i met a girl who likes prog too She said baby just pretend you never read that review Let's get us some of that old-time prog Where synthesizers are at alone. The sound that's making
1: our ears unclog. That is our passion, always in fashion. So don't go trashing that old-time prog. Yeah, uh, so um, old-time prog. Well, you know, John, John and I... Um, I met John... Um, I don't know. Sometime in the uh, early 2000s. But he, he had somehow come across my album in Michigan when he was a teenager, um, My the popular music group album. It somehow it ended up in some, I don't know how it was in some record store there, but it, someone gave mm-hmm. it and said, oh, you might like this. And he was, so of all things, he, he like, you know, was listening to this stuff when, in an impressionable age and, and um, became a big fan. And then he, later on introduced himself to me and i and you know shared some of his music and he he's very um he's inter- he's influenced in 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 um like half by Prague rock mm-hmm. and half um by weird Al. Mm-hmm. so he has kind of a a comedy music aspect and a and a like just you know bombastic prog music, not really bombastic, right. but like, you know, really intricate prog music. And he does these, I mean, he's incredibly prolific. He's got, he's got this, this band called Zorznajor. And one of the things, <laughs> one of the things that, that they, he does is they do songs with, that are just like, they well, they did, a, they, they did a, a song for every day of the year. So like there's May 26th. So he does like little, You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe a minute, minute and a half song for every day of the year. Then he did, I think he did like uh, the copyright law. He set it to music and then he's he's done a a series of songs about just words. So he's done like, you know, the word they, Mm -hmm. they. And so he does, they're sort of conceptual, Um, but he also does other you know, just like regular songs yeah. too. So, anyhow, I knew he was a big prog fan and um, had done a lot of cool stuff. And I always we'd talked about working together. We tried to work on one other thing before, and um, so uh, I wanted to write a song with him. And um, and we can't. And I had a few ideas, and they weren't very good ideas. And then I said, "Hey, what about a song that's like? Give me some of that old time rock and roll." except for about Prague rock. And, uh, and then we sort of went from there. The idea was to do you know um a send-up of a lot of different uh classic prog rock things so there's a kind of a genesis reference and a yes reference and a gentle giant reference and and uh you know elp so um, <laughs> and then you know there's kind of an album with that there's a song within a song there's a yeah. there's a there's a there's a little section that's in Sanskrit, and a, a little story about a pilgrimage to try to find uh, the, uh, the Colorado River toad to, to seek Nirvana and all this stuff. So, um, and then I'm now right now I'm in the midst of working on the video for it, so, the music video for it. So there's, a, there's there's even more detail in the video.
0: It's such an affectionate. A uh, song that, like you're, you're definitely, uh, you know, tweaking it and kind of teasing it, but it also you couldn't produce something like that without putting a a, a Prog'sman's amount of work into it. <laughs> Indeed, I don't know. There's something about standing there and poking fun at a genre or 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 celebrating a genre with a smirk that's different when you've seems like you've done your homework, you know, and you're actually doing yeah. it. And I think Prague is one of those things that. It, there is like such an intense musicality going on in a lot of it that people may not like the sound of it but it's very sophisticated right. often and a lot of, a lot of times right. it comes from kind of the same impulse we've been talking about of being a popular musician or a rock musician and wanting to bring something a little bit more musical or a little bit more challenging or interesting you know mm-hmm. and clearly lots yeah. of people love it and have loved it over the years but it gets a lot of rap for being like you know pretentious and overblown and ostentatious and it's right. all of those things too so yeah. it always kind of makes me laugh like the idea of songs with movements and these yeah. these ethereal names <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Can't breathe until everyone can breathe we can't breathe until everyone we can't breathe with a nightstick that's clutched at our throat we can't breathe on the ground with a knee on our neck we can't breathe with our hands cuffed in chains at our back we can't
0: breathe pepper spray uh, it's a bit of whiplash uh, perhaps from uh, old-time prog um but uh we can't breathe is a is a really it's a very powerful lyric and uh has a lot of uh i don't know kind of a layered meaning to it within the song i i was hoping you might kind of break down what your thought process was behind this um this rather sad protest song well
1: um i mean it just occurred to me over the summer when the, during all the protests that, that 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 um that i can't breathe was really Uh, you know, a potent metaphor for what was going on in so many ways, you know, it just struck me, you know, there's obviously the George Floyd being murdered by the cop. And then, you know, I thought then we're all, you know, we're people are dying from this thing where they can't breathe you know dying from covid where they can't breathe and then it just you know I, I i saw the connection there and then i thought okay then we can't breathe because we can't we can't speak freely in lots of parts of the world where we can't you know people are are you know silenced you know and then i thought we can't breathe because um our air is polluted and so I just thought, I just thought it as a really potent metaphor for a, a lot of things that were going on right now. And I just thought of a, just a, a message of solidarity was called for. We can't
2: breathe until everyone can breathe. We can't breathe until everyone can breathe. We can't breathe until everyone can breathe. can't breathe not a whisper word of dissent breathe, in those places where protest is banned where the truth is dismembered and burned can't breathe, never get heard we will not be kept
0: up. to me this feels like it must be a very tough thing to write honestly because that. it's hard for me to turn down my sense that i am i don't know stepping outside of the I mean, it's if not my comfort zone, but just like you always wonder, like, can I address this subject in a thoughtful way, you know? And I, I mean, I think I think you have, but I'm sure that must have been a concern.
1: Yeah, it is. I think it is. People are touchy about stuff, and it's also, tr- you know, how to how do you say something that doesn't just sound trite or cliche? Yeah, there've been some really great protests. Yes, so. there definitely have. And there've been some really cheesy, really corny, really bad ones. So. <laughs>
2: no, it's true.
0: So we're kind of knocking on the door of a bigger topic that we just have to get into, which is this crazy ambitious four-album cycle that you've just finished of of albums that are themed where the songs are broken down by category. Um but, but one of the albums, called Antipathy and Ideology, is um, you know, putatively it's an album of uh of of political songs or songs uh that contain some sort of social statement. And, and we can't breathe is an example of, of one of those songs. Yeah. And I was just wondering if knowing that you were writing songs for a political album, did it, did it free you up to be more
1: direct or blunt in any way? Um, I, I guess so. I think, I think, I mean, I've, I've done political things before, um, but I feel like my writing has become more direct Um Over the last like 15 years, I'm I'm less interested in just in in ambiguity and more interested in clarity. Yeah. It's good to say pointed things if you you can do them well. Mm -hmm. There's a certain number of topics that, uh, political topics that I think about and that a lot of people probably think about. And, um, you know, how are you going to talk about each one? And there's like... Let me do a song for everything. <laughs> yeah. Not everything I think about, but many of the things I think about. And how do you approach
0: that? Right. Well, I mean, how do you approach that as a songwriter when you kind of have an assignment for yourself, like filling up an album of political songs? But beyond that, you're trying to fill up three other albums at the same time. Was, was the sheer quantity of songwriting you were doing during this period, uh, was it ever just incredibly daunting?
1: I had the experience when I was writing for Kids TV of you know, having to write a lot of songs very quickly and working with other songwriters sometimes. But that's sort of an aside. At any rate, we had to crank out a lot of songs very quickly. So I would be writing many songs you know, a week, producing, a, getting two or, th- two or three done a week. And I, I learned that it was possible to do that. And often, you know, sometimes I would just write it and have somebody else do the do all the tracking and the arrangement. And so I thought, why don't I apply those skills to making a lot of songs over the next? Well, it was gonna. I wanted to do the whole four albums in twenty twenty, but it got a little got a little out of hand. Um, what happened in 2020 that threw off your, your I don't know. No, it, it really wasn't the pandemic that, <laughs> that, that messed me up. It was just my ambition of trying to make so much music, because each album is like 70 minutes long. So it's um, like pretty much a double out. Al- each one is a double album or almost a double album. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. And part
0: of me goes, oh, don't worry about Brian. That's just the way he is. He writes and writes and writes. But uh, I also think, God, what a push that must have been, and how maddening that must have been to be in the midst of it. Although I know you didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write four albums that are giant and have different categories of songs on them. It was more of of an organic thing where you were doing what you do, and then the idea to present them in this way came into being. And I guess maybe take me through that thought process a little bit. Like, What was it that made you say, now's the time to do this four CD cycle? But also, do you feel a bit like you've cleaned house? I mean, just getting, you know, nearly five hours worth of music out in the world? Um,
1: okay. D- well, there's a couple of questions. You know, I'm 62 years old, and I, and my singing is okay right now. And I'm hoping it'll keep being good. Uh, good but I, I figured I should sing, mm. um, write a bunch of songs that f- for me to sing and record... This this is as good a time as it's going to be probably. Yeah. So I figured I might as well do it um now. And I have a lot of I have other projects. I have um some theater, some like musicals that I'm that are mid or just starting or mid rewrite and, you know, a lot of quite a few other projects and which I won't be singing myself and then things like another instrumental album I want to do. So I just thought Um, you know, the singing is, the singing is as good as it's going to be. So I'm going to do it while I, while I have the chops and hopefully I keep having the chops for a long time, but, um, you know, that was sort of the, that was sort of one of the reasons for doing it.
0: Well, your voice does sound good on these, on these albums and it kind of goes hand in hand with your arrangement, sensibility, and and the melodies are really strong. So it does kind of feel like it's coalescing into something. And that's why it's kind of hard for me not to look at this cycle of albums and view it as this, um, you know, summative statement, right. or, or you at the height of your powers. But uh, when you talk about it, I realize that once again, as with all creative projects, it's just like a, a pile of small decisions that add up to this larger work.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, of the four albums... And the four categories, um, which I don't think we've really mentioned what they all are. I'll just rattle them mm-hmm. off right now. Mm-hmm. The first one was called Levity and Novelty. And that was, as it might sound, the the kind of comedy album. That's a, the where old-time prog comes from. And right. that's kind of an indication of the kind of humor that's on that album. And then the second one was called Balladry and Soliloquy. And that is an album of romantic songs or personal story songs. Um, then there is Antipathy and Ideology, which, as we've said, is the political album. Um, And then the last one, which I want to dig into in just a minute, but the last one you've described as the weird experimental album, and that is Rhapsody and Filigree. Now, they all fit together, but I just think it bears mentioning that they're not so distinct from each other. Like, there's a lot of Brian in all of them, and they overlap in a way. Like, uh, the political album has funny moments on it and and the comedy album is not devoid of statements or
1: messages that might be meaningful to you. To, to some degree, I can understand, and I think there's a validity to um, the critique of my work, in the, particularly in terms of albums, where I like, I mean, I really like this juxtaposition of a completely earnest song about you know, some heartfelt thing, and then a completely tongue-in-cheek song and having them right next to each other, um, I enjoy that. I yeah. like I like to have the, the, the... I like to have, you know, I like to change the knob, and it's a different color and a different flavor and a different tone and different intentionality. There's, um, you know... One song is sung from Brian's point of view, and another song is sung from an obnoxious persona, of, you know, you know, who believes things that I wouldn't, I, you know, I don't believe, as a way to make fun of those things. But it's difficult um, sometimes for people to get that that's what's going on. Rhonda's living life at a standstill Born and bred on Anaheim Landfill Help is on a Grateful Dead handbill Promising a way out of landfill. Hitch up to Marin where the streams flow To the kind of landscape her dreams know
0: to use your own words, if you like to turn the knob and see a different color, the album Rhapsody in Filigree um, is like you just sitting there twiddling the knobs back and forth uh, like a maniac. Yes, right, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I want to dig into this one because it's not just the fourth album in this four album cycle and your most recent work but also I think in some ways it it is the culmination of so many different things that you do and I'm I'm really interested to hear you talk about it uh, uh, because it's it's a it's a really
1: propulsive and engrossing album that that never stops moving um, this one is way more complicated it, musically it's more um the songs are just all more involved. There's more chords in every song, more parts, more. Um, there's long, longer songs. They're different. The, the forms are less pop song-like sometimes. Yeah. Or they're, or they're you know, uh, very extended song forms, where there's lots of sections, and it goes from one thing to another. Um, uh, also, I, I, I spent a good deal of time trying to make not just trying but making a lot of videos for the first um uh, three albums in the project so uh, i spent um many months just shooting video and editing video and then at some point i said you know and i was putting up a video a week uh, you know uh, on youtube and i thought you know i better get back to this album if, if i'm going to finish it and then it, it has taken me quite a bit of time to work on this to finish this album but um um, I'm glad I, it, I'm glad it took, you know, I'm glad that I allowed the amount of time that I needed to, to do it because I'm, I'm really proud of it and it's, and it's um, you know, it needed, it needed a lot of, uh, a lot of care and time.
2: Left at loose ends, world tour of opium dens. Without a
1: plan, Afghanistan stares our hero.
2: That land is full of woe, and evil is in power. Why did you have to go?
1: So Theseus Rex, that's the opener. Um, that one actually I've been working on for quite a while. I started writing that in, actually started recording it in 2008, and never was quite satisfied with how with the shape of it. And so I sort of started tinkering with it again in 2020 and and re-recorded parts of it. And so um, it basically tell it's a it's a mini rock opera. It's like a mini progressive rock opera uh, kind of inspired by uh, Genesis con- uh, concept albums from the seventies. It's like a-, a story told in a, in a, in a slightly arch, uh, uh, you know, quasi poetic sort of language. Mm-hmm. It's a series. It's, it's told in these quatrains with a A B A B ABAB rhyme kind of the kind of, kind of goes throughout and it's, um, it tells a story in not necessarily the most straightforward way, but the story is uh, of a, uh, it's basically the, the the myth of Theseus retold uh, as um, in starting in the late 60s with Theseus being the bastard son of Jerry Garcia of the Grateful <laughs> Dead. So, um, so we start with uh, Theseus's mom as a underage hippie girl from, anaheim hitchhiking up to the bay area and sneaking backstage at a grateful dead concert and she meets jerry and and has a has a one night stand with him bears his son um and and the so so theseus that you know it follows the 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 myth of theseus being rejected by his father and and um having to prove himself in battle in in our in in my my story, the um, Theseus ends up in Afghanistan as a, a growing opium, growing poppies and and spying for the northern Alliance against the Taliban when they take over and and being um, mistaken for a an American jihadi after the American war. and um, anyhow, so it comes back and there's a you know sort of a tragic. End where his mom thinks he's he's um, he's been killed, and she throws herself off the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. So it, it's 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 very you know loosely based, but there's a lot of um, uh, touchstones which are from directly from the myth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the and the, the song goes through. You know, it has a sort of song like structure. That it begins with, it's got verse and chorus, but then it goes into many different sections and um, uh, g- goes through different styles as it as as the story develops as it as it progresses through time, as the hero uh, you know uh, faces the, his challenges. Are you easily bored? Ah, uh, probably, <laughs> probably. Well, I can totally feel that
0: in these songs, but not in a way that feels restless and like unformed because it's like you you'll you'll you really go in for broke. Some sometimes there's one moment in one song that goes into kind of a klezmer band thing, and and then uh-huh. it, but it doesn't last long. Whereas I feel like most people, if they went to that trouble to achieve that feel, they would indulge it a little bit longer because it's pleasurable to hear, you know. But you kind of dabble in it, you move past it, and I don't know. I just I just wonder is that is that you being musically restless or is that conceptual restlessness or do you think it's a big combination that you shouldn't
1: question I shouldn't ask you to question <laughs> no it's a good question I think I think my feeling is well we can't do this for too long you know everyone was going to get bored listening to this for too long um, which may be just a a, a very you know it, it may be completely wrong the um conceptually sometimes it is a conceptual thing for instance there's a song called bad timing which is mm-hmm. a it's kind of a uh, um uh, it's kind of a recitative of an op- like from an opera where where it's a spo- it's sung dialogue there's no there's not much like song structure it's not it's not poetic in any way it's really it's you know it's prose always late why stupid no matter how early i leave it's never enough raskin says i have a bastard's degree in dim- What is time?
2: is time? I shouldn't be asking, I should be answering mm-hmm. is my
1: job. Or it will be once we get the chronometrics experiment approved by
2: the LHC. <laughs> Working with a large hand collider. <laughs> that is big time,
1: but we gotta get this proposal the, the conceit for that was every line was a different genre of music. And I thought because I, 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 a I wanted to do that. I thought that would be a fun challenge. B, I th- it was a conceptual. Uh, it, it fit the the character, who is a, a neurotic um, particle physicist, um, fretting about um, you know his 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 partner that he's collaborating on, trying to get this uh, experiment done at the Large Hadron Collider, and he's. Um, He's very neurotic and he's he's very resentful and and so he's he he's he, he's um, trying to pinpoint he his study, he's trying to study time and, um, you know, some some very esoteric aspect of of trying to isolate the the, the smallest units of time and, and, but at the same time he, he's he's um, you know, completely, uh, he can't keep track of time and he and he f- goes from one thing to the other so that was, it was it's kind of a corny joke but it I, it served the the character well i thought to go from one thing to another even though the choices of what it goes from may not really reflect any kind of real human being <laughs> other than me you're
2: the one who usually the mess. I have the right to do it what's bizarre?
1: Why did Dr. Kim even put you on this proposal, Raskin? You wouldn't know a zepto-second from a yocto-second. Your only interest in Planck time is to detect a quantum anomaly for your
2: ludicrous simulation hypothesis you're glitching the matrix i know
1: don't call it matrix but you treat our proposal like some glorified thought experiment Ugh. enough about rask and focus i guess that he's good at the things that he does being center of attention going to conferences getting published forget about him i'm smarter i mean smarter i know what i mean stupid why am i telling me people who talk to themselves are geniuses you know now is something the brain do.
0: It seems to me that almost every time someone does one of these, like, suites of songs that have little micro songs in them or little micro genres, it's always tantalizing. There's always a part of me that wants to hear full versions of some of those moments. But as I listen to this song a couple times, I I realize there are little motifs that run through it. So, you you know, maybe it's a character-based thing or a storytelling device you're using. Um, that connects these little pieces, but I, I do think that you worked hard to make something that both follows that idea—that literally the style changes every line or so—but also that uh, somehow it's not annoyingly disorienting to listen to. It still has a cohesion,
1: right? And and in in my defense, I did I did try to create some thematic unity between. You know, I would try to um, use certain. Melodic fragments, reuse them or you know uh, transform them so that they would, um, you know, the that one piece would would relate to another one. One little section would relate to another. You know, honestly, h- how I came up with some of those was I, I just went through like a, a Spotify playlist of like pop music and and oh, what's this? Okay, let me do something like that. So I, you know, I just kind of grabbed genres and little things, but you know, singing, singing about, you know, plank time and, 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 um, y- you know, yocto seconds while doing those genres basically d- makes it not those genres because, you know, that's not what those songs are about. So.
0: Well, the finished song has a, has a strong sense of like, what those pop hooks and what those pop production techniques really are so so yeah this 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 really does reflect a good ear for that type of thing and and I guess kind of the same way that town and country uh, showed a true love of pop country this this type of thing even in an, in an experimental song like this um, it 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 sort of shows a, an appreciation for pop
1: yeah very much you know I like contemporary pop pop music uh, for whatever i mean what if it's if i like it i it's i don't care if, what the genre is particularly but i also have to say that my um that i had a collaborator who did the production on the bad timing song so yeah, sam woodbury my cousin is a um uh producer and does uh, and is much more familiar with that kind of stuff so he he kind of made the made the tracks he's the convincer on some of that stuff yeah 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 because I would not have been able to pull that off. I should also shout out my um, co-writer, my, the guy who co-wrote the libretto with me, Joe Mo, my longtime collaborator, um, who's more of a—he's a, uh, a, a playwright among many, many other things. Uh, but we've worked together in bands and written musicals for years and years. And so he really, he really um, helped shape the, helped shape that in terms of the the guy and just his dial you know the lines he's very funny joe is uh, um a wit honestly it all comes down to i like my illusion
2: better than yours but aren't you supposed to be the wonder kid who can get her proposal approved for the heart had drawn collide Somebody there Shut up For fuck's sake No you shut up Oh hey
1: Roskin It's
2: about time
0: Maybe I'm just looking for themes uh, That aren't really there But thinking about how Bad timing uh, Plays with Pop Ideas sonically But maybe not uh, In terms of Subject matter um, Another song on this album Which I would love to hear you talk about Is uh, The Day the Music Never Died Which Almost Kind of forces you to look at popular music and popular music orthodoxy uh, in a different
2: way. Bach was very dead, his cantatas all ignored. His passions had been sung and long forgotten with the harpsichord. Till they brought him back on stage To take one last concert gave bow And dropped him in the pantheon Which we're still living under now
1: the music never died was suggested by a a concert that Felix Mendelssohn uh, uh, was was, um, the impresario of I believe I don't I don't remember the year I should know the year maybe I can look up the year Uh, he he, um, they did um, I think they did music by Handel who was from a who had who was dead who had long been, um, you know, he, he was revered among musicians, but not really well known. Um, and this concert sort of symbolizes the, the, the beginning of classical music when, when, you know, classical music up to that time had been whatever the current people were doing, the, you know, the music that was being written at that time. presented for whatever occasion it was and mendelssohn said wait these guys are these handle is great so we must do a a concert of this i I don't know probably did an oratorio and and so i don't know if it's really the first time this kind of thing was done but it was it kind of codified the idea that the old composers were the masters and we have to preserve their work and um, in the uh, 19th century that was a a big sort of schism because there were the um sort of revolutionaries like um wagner and Liszt who wanted to um who wanted you know music of the future and then there were the conservatives like brahms uh who was wanting to preserve these these old guys and um Ironically, the conservatives were the more progressive, pol- politically progressive, and the revolutionaries were, um, you know, very reactionary and monarchist. So there was a sort of, um, but there was this move, you know, the idea that, you know, we have to keep keep these masters and bring them with us. Um, so eventually, you know, you have all these masters, and it kind of crowds out the new music and so it's really had a big effect on classical music in general and then you know largely some of that is 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 replicated in pop music also because you have every generation has its oldies that i still like the oldies the music today is you know and this is this has been gone on you know ever since there was popular pop music um so and then you know the song is about you know, I, I love, you know, the old classical music. I love all that st- stuff. But, you know, you have to realize
0: that there is a, a trade-off. Right. You want to have historical perspective, and you don't want to deny yourself the pleasure of all this great art that has come before. But when it gets to the point that it's taking up all the all the space that we have, and, um, and you know already there are voices that are having a hard time being heard, it really doesn't make that much sense to look back um at what was preserved too much because we know that what
1: was preserved is probably not a complete picture my it's it's sort of the thing my wife when she was a kid had a book called the boyhoods of the great composers and it just sort of that, that sort of always sort of symbolized you know um their boyhoods were somehow important and they were all they were all boys, you know. They were not. There were no. Gir- there's no girlhoods of the great composers. Well, there's the problem with the pantheon. Know thyself. That's what somebody
2: once said. To get wisdom and to get ahead. So I searched myself on Google. That is. or
1: his there's a guy who has my name a guy who isn't me he makes music which is a shame because I make music now you see where this whole thing is going to but since our names the same no way of knowing who it is
0: Another song that feels like uh, it has a story behind it that I would like to hear is The Other Brian Woodbury, um, which could be made up, but it
1: it could well, be true. Well, yeah, it is indeed true. Okay, cool. Well, let's hear it. A couple years ago, I um, Googled Googling myself as one does. Um, with the name John Walker, you just don't bother. It's like there's no... No, you yeah. don't. You, this is nothing, nothing you can relate to. Um, but... But... Um, this is something that you know I, I do just just to see what what, what is being said about me, right? Um, but um, I've there I found my I found this other guy who's a musician. I mean, there've been you know obviously there've been other Brian Woodburys, but you know they've been in other fields. So so as not to um, not to infringe, <laughs> not to impinge. Um, but uh, so I found this other guy um, Brian Woodbury, who's a trombone player, a jazz musician putting out records
3: and the
1: the um the thing that that uh, was irritating was uh, on on the playlists on the streaming playlists we were listed together as one person his albums were listed right next to mine I was like what's the latest thing by brian woodbury and it was his album mm. and um i was like wait hold on a minute who is this guy and so uh i i actually checked out some of his stuff and i like infuriatingly he was good <laughs> Uh, and, um, uh, and he, and he'd made sort of an instrumental, uh, jazz, you know, sort of small ensemble album, but sort of new jazz, but not, not, not really straight ahead jazz, kind of compositional jazz and could, uh, conceivably be confused with some of my music, cause I had put out an instrumental album. Right. And I thought, oh no, people are going to be confused. What can we do? And, and so I got in touch with him. I forget how exactly, probably on Facebook or something like that. And I said, "Oh, do you know that we're?" And he said, "Oh, yeah. Sorry about that." And I said, "No, no, no chance you're going to change your. You're going to start adding your middle initial." And he was like, "No, no, no." And so he we said, "Well, we, we've got to figure out what to do about this." And so we, as anyone who's ever tried to deal with um, streaming or you know companies or YouTube it's it's really impenetrable it's really hard to get th- through to an actual person um you know so to, try to to try to straighten it all out and put put us on different and it, there's a lot of rigmarole to do it and you don't
0: know if it worked <laughs> like it's <laughs> like right. wait wait a couple of months and see if the change went through you know and just get back
1: to us then i mean i've had you know i had an album that came out in 2004 that all the but somebody along the line put it, it had come out in, in ninety-eight because one tune from it had been on a compilation earlier. And you can't change that. I it's, it's still listed as coming at having come out in 1990, 1998. And so these things can't are it's really difficult to to because to, the internet is forever and you know, things perpetuate themselves. So anyway, so I said I joked, wouldn't it be funny, since, since it was going to be difficult to sort of change it, wouldn't it be difficult and wouldn't it be a good way to fuck with them, with these algorithms, to collaborate and put a song by Brian Woodbury and Brian Woodbury? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so he thought that was funny, and then I said, let's write this together. And so that's what we did.
0: You know, honestly, when I just saw the liner notes and I saw that this song featured... Both Brian Woodbury and uh, Dr. Brian W. Woodbury. I actually thought, oh, maybe that's your
1: dad. Yeah, of course. Yeah. How does Dr. Brian W. Woodbury feel about this song? He was um, delightful to work with, and we had a great we had a great collaboration. He uh, he's actually we're we're making the video for it right now. So he's he he lives in Utah. So. Um, He's filming himself in Utah. I'm filming myself here. You know, I mean, the thing is, I, I call him Doctor just because he has a PhD right. and I don't. And he and I call him W because that's his middle <laughs> initial. Right. It's a way to distinct yeah. make a distinction, right? But that's not really what he goes by. Yeah. On his album, he's not going to call. He doesn't go by that. But uh, he can call me whatever, doofus <laughs> Brian Woodbury. Oh.
0: Are you going to do? I mean, is there going to be a version on his album too? That
1: is, a, well, I don't know. I, I I haven't talked to him about that, but I'm, I'd be happy for him to do it. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, in addition, to, you know, getting to know him and, and his playing, um, he ended up playing on um, like three other tunes on on my album, just because he's a swell trombone player and um, and. You know, very easy to work with, and and I thought that's great. We are
2: like water, our sounds, our scales, our DNA. We
0: flow. The other song that you chose as kind of a highlight song to talk about, um, how soon we forget, how long we remember, um, has got some great guest vocals on
1: it. Well, this one is this one has I think 8 co-writers. So here's what here's how this song came about. And this one is actually th- technically the most experimental of even though musically it doesn't sound necessarily as experimental, but it it was based on a, a an actual experiment.
2: How soon we forget how long how long how soon we forget How long we remember, how soon we forget, how long, how long.
1: I came up with a theme, a little musical theme. How soon we forget, how long we remember, that little chorus. Mm -hmm. I sent it to the first musician on the list who collaborated with me. And I said, listen to this. Then listen to it once, then forget it, and then try to remember it and record, give me a recording of as best you can remember what it sounded like. Mm -hmm. And so everybody, and then that one was sent on to somebody else, and then that was sent on to somebody else. So everybody's contribution was a, and I did, I think I did three streams of it. So I sent one version to one person, and then I sent another of the original version to another couple of people. but anyway, then I uh, uh, um, then they sent these back and then I made the song from those using their versions of the theme and my and my original version. And so the the concept of the song it's about how um, it's about cultural evolution, how language, how music changes over time. Mm-hmm.
2: How soon you forget? So...
0: It's almost like if you were a film director, you would wanna shoot a lot of different things on the day of this really complex day. So that when you're in the editing room, you have all the pieces you need. And this is like, yeah, yeah, this song could buckle under its own weight, but it never does. It stays so light. And again, this is one of those, I was mentioning before where every little new piece, it's like, you could say, it's a little jarring to go from that to this, but it's not because it's it's also pleasant the way it fits together. It feels like people, I feel like everybody that did their own piece really got the assignment,
1: you know? (laughs) yeah they did and and i think that there it gives it a it gives it a um a unity because there is you know because there is a a, a kernel in there uh, that sort of started the whole thing and then of course you know I, I i you know i fudged a lot of stuff so that it would you know so that there would be cultural uh, you know, there would be a uh, musical unity you know that I, you know i'd weave the theme into New, new places. And then, and then how? And in creating it, and in and making the track, I asked all the people. I got as many of the people who had. Co written it with me, you know, who had contributed to that game of musical telephone, to sing on it as could. And a couple of them couldn't, so I I brought in a couple of ringers Amy Denio, Amy Englehart, Bill Burnett, Jonathan Feinberg, Paul F. Perry, Tulasi Rain, and Johnny Unicorn.
0: Well, we need to wrap this up, but I can't let you go without talking about the song Murderer, sung by uh, the great Brian Dewan, oh, uh, who I've, yeah, I've yeah. always loved his voice. Uh, it, it is perfect for this this kind of creepy material.
2: Oh, cool, cool, cool. I dreamt I was a murderer, returned to the scene of the crime, like a creepy tale from Hollywood for the hundred thousandth time. I searched for what I'd overlooked, for clues I might somehow have missed. Then I found the corpse
1: had disappeared in a classic film noir twist. All right, well, this song was was written um, with with my friend uh, John Thomas Oakes, who I, I've written a, several songs with on that were on the previous volumes of this uh, project. Um, so this one i wrote lyrics i had it's a real it's a true story and it's a creepy ass story um about a dream um it's a a dream where i've killed somebody and i don't remember who i've killed but i have i'm racked with this horrible horrible guilt like just awful and um so i i you know i've that dream really shook me and so i i i started writing about it, it and it sort of formed this kind of um, Edgar Allan Poe-like scenario. It it sort of, it felt kind of like an old-fashioned kind of poem. And um, so I wanted to set it to music, and I asked my friend John Thomas Oakes to do it. And we were thinking um, sort of Weimar era, um, you know, sort of really... Naughty harmonies and and, um, sort of dissonant chords and and kind of like um, Kurt Weill type thing
2: But what of the blameless penitent Remorseful for deeds never done Who believes himself the trigger man Though he's never handled a gun
1: I learned a lot from the cinema. So he wrote he wrote this nice you know piano arrangement of this and it's and it's it's it's, it's um it's murky and it's and it, it keeps sort of uh, modulating but you don't really realize that it's modulating and it's um anyhow it's this this really cool piece of music. Mm-hmm. And then we thought and then I thought, okay, let's let's really go for the Weimar thing. So I arranged it in a sort of a cabaret, you know, like cabaret, the musical, that, that era thing with, um, you know, tuba and bass trombones and, and, um, um, violin and clarinets and, and, um, percussion, John, John Feinberg playing percussion, like little wood blocks and things. And, um, and then I just thought I I I, I, I sang it I, and I thought I really need someone with a little little more of a, a sort of an old fashioned voice mm-hmm. and Brian DeWan real I mean I probably have an old fashioned voice I'd have an old fashioned voice but Brian DeWan has an even older fashioned voice.
0: You, you your old fashioned voice is like somehow it's like. And I, I mean, this is a compliment because it's the music of my youth, but you have like an AM, uh, gold, like radio gold 70s. You've got like a beautifully smooth <laughs> voice that makes me think of like the, the radio hits of, of, of my childhood. And I, baby, I,
1: I'm I Want You, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but I know what you mean about like singing styles. And yeah, Brian DeWan, um, you know, I find that there are times when like. We've mentioned They Might Be Giants a couple of times. John Linnell's voice and Brian DeWan's voice occasionally mm. overlap oh, in that yeah, kind of yeah. reedy place. But yeah. there is something about Brian DeWan that sounds like this could be one of those old ancient recordings you hear yes. that's like yeah. really warbly. And it's, I mean, they. I think yeah. they've even used him to that effect, or he's used his own voice to that effect. But there's very few people who hit that kind of their voice is a woodwind instrument kind of place Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And I think John Linnell is one, and I think that Brian Dewan is Mm -hmm. another. And yes, you're right. It's like, it's almost like that's his brand. There's nobody else. I already said, there's nobody else who quite sounds like him, but he is able to put that sort of, there's a a, like extreme deadpan to his singing style. Absolutely. Absolutely. That
1: feels like, yeah, it's totally devoid of like the modern quirks are... Wink, wink, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. No, he's... Yeah, and he's a brilliant artist, you know. Oh, yeah, And, and always, I mean, a brilliant writer and, and um, visual artist as well. Um, and, you know, I just thought, I thought he would dig it, and I thought he would nail it, and and he did, did both. Well, the last thing I wanted to mention was just a tiny bit of um,
0: songwriter shop talk, uh, which is to say that um, I really enjoy and appreciate... Uh, internal rhymes, little extra unnecessary rhymes. Yeah. There's a three-part rhyme in the song Dystopian Fantasy that I just had to call out because I noticed it. You say it's only hyperbole, verbally, you'd never believe that hype. I was very happy when it got to the uh, the third part of that, because I'm always looking for those, I usually find them accidentally and then go, oh my God, if I just do this here, then I've got like another internal rhyme. But I love it when it, when it catches your ear and you just go like i'm i'm i was just wanting to point that out cuz i'm sure that was that was a i'm sure you giggled to yourself and felt very smug for 3 seconds but when you,
1: <laughs> when you did that i our, th- our thought no one's going to get that or people are going to think wow that is really contrived <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad you appreciate it john well uh, yeah i'm just uh, that
0: perfect person to think like to think it's not <laughs> cloying when you do that something that clever but i just love when those sort of things i mean i think that's one of the great thrills of listening to hip hop, obviously, is all that internal oh, rhyming. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be complex. It's when someone gets to the third, fourth, fifth iteration of it that you go, okay, yeah. these don't have to be like $5 words or whatever. Um They, they, they can be simple words, but that like once you, it, it builds and you start, there
1: is a, a, a mental effect that starts to happen of like the wordplay stacking up. Uh, the internal one is a gratuitous one, as you said. And it's and it doesn't have to be in a particular place. And it, then the wonderful thing about it, like in hip hop songs, you know, you have these accumulations of rhymes, and they don't, and they're not, you know, you're not, you're not waiting for it to rhyme as a sort of end of line cadence thing. It, you're just they just accumulate, and um, and it builds up in that.
0: It's like a headlong you know, it, headlong yeah. feeling of going, like you're right. losing your balance and
1: you're 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 following it forward, right? And also, I th- I think in hip hop, I love the sort of off-rhymeness yeah. of it. I think that the that adds to it in in you know I and I know my musical theater pals would disagree heartily, but I feel like you know I th- I feel like the the off-rhymeness, um, it, it's it's like in some way it's 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 being inclusive in this way of like grabbing these things that don't quite sound like each other, but forcing them to sound like each other. It's it, it's it, to me it's the opposite. It's it's not like a, um, you know, price and and time in a country song where they where they just like the the vowels the same and they don't care. That's like they don't care. But in hip hop, it's like this, you know, the far fetchedness of it is part of the 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 thrill of it. We'll never make it to another star. There isn't energy to get that far. Well, I think
0: the far-fetchedness is part of the thrill of your music too, Brian, and it has been a thrill to talk about it. Uh, why don't you tell folks where they can find you online? Yeah, you want
1: Bandcamp.com. This is coming out as a box set with all four of these albums at the same time as this new album comes out. So,
0: And the box set, all that stuff together, is called uh, Anthems and Antithets, correct?
1: Anth- anthems and Antithets, and it's... Um, it's this neat little box set that it comes in and it's got this little cool insert that, that sort of like the, like the insert in Sgt. Pepper's album where, it, where it's like a little thing you can cut out and make into a shape. It makes it, it uh, into a 10-sided shape, which is very cool. which has images of, the, um, of all the different albums on it.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great.
1: Well, thank you. I, I hope I had something smart to say. We all sound smart in the edit. Don't worry. If if all else fails, you can just cut out my part and just leave your observations. <laughs> if it comes to that, we're in big trouble. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks a lot, John. Take care. The
2: stars are back into our distant past.
1: Can they detect our brilliant chorus?
0: For more episodes of Playing Records with John, as well as other shows like it, subscribe to FYIZ wherever you get your podcasts.
2: That's
1: not necessarily a joke that you're supposed to get, it's just a joke that's there.